Alright, so it's wonderful to be with you. And uh, I have a confession to make before we start. When Donovan asked me last night if I could come and take his place today, I, I thought, okay, well, there's this great sermon that I preached, and I will bring it for you today. It's here on my flash disk. But then while I was driving here in the car, I realized, I think I preached that sermon there already. So I thought, I'm not going to just go ahead and preach the same sermon again, even though some guys here said that uh, you know they, they've never seen me preach before. But for those of you who were here, I decided to spare you the same sermon again, and I'll preach something else. So even while I've been sitting here, and while we've been singing, and while I've been speaking to people, I've been trying to decide what to say. And when I saw your text on the board here, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I thought, yeah, I'm definitely going to go back to Romans. So, combining everything together, all the conversations I've had, I thought, Let's, let me go to one of my favorite texts, and that is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And this, Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, are those two verses are some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And you'll see, hopefully, before the end of today, you'll see why I enjoy that particular text so much. And Paul begins. He begins by saying, Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Now many... Maybe we could just have a look at a, a couple of little details in this one verse. And those details have to do with grammar, okay? You know, English grammar. Of course, when you do exegesis properly, you go to Greek, and you see what the grammar is like in Greek, because it doesn't matter what it says in English, if that's not what it says in Greek, okay? So when you look at the Greek, you find out this sentence is beautifully structured. Now, one of the things we know about English grammar is that you never find the main point of a verse in what they call a, a subordinate clause. What is a subordinate clause? I mean, you're gonna, hopefully you're going to remember this. this is, I'm not going to get all complicated here. All I'm saying is that if I say to you, I am going, you know I'm going somewhere. If I say I am going to the shop, that to the shop is a subordinate clause because it gives information about me saying, I am going. I'm going to the shop. Or on Tuesday, I will go to the shop. On Tuesday has got nothing to do with the sentence saying, I'm going to the shop. On Tuesday, it gives me information about that one main primary sentence. Eh? So if you look at Romans 5 verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that's not the main sentence, is it? What is the main sentence here? We have peace. We have peace. What an amazing statement. We have peace. That's the, the main point he's making in this whole verse. We have peace. So of course then you want to say, well, who has peace? And why do we have peace? And through whom do we have peace? There's all kinds of questions when a writer of scripture just says, we have peace. You can be sitting in your chair and you want to say, do I have peace? Is it a fact? I don't feel very peaceful. Life is pressing on me. I feel quite anxious. But this text is saying, we have peace. It is a fact. 
that you have peace. Now it is interesting that he says we have peace with God. Remarkable. How can a man, how can a sinful person like me have peace with a holy God? How can I look at God and God smiles at me rather than God looking at me with an angry, angry frown? How can that possibly happen? In fact, because this is the main sentence here, we have peace, and then a subordinate clause, with God, we have to say, how did this happen? Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. If you look at the context of Paul's letter to the Romans, now just, just stick with me, I'm going to make this a flying overview. If you look at Romans chapter 1, all the way from verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, to verse 20 of Romans chapter 3. That's two and a half chapters. Paul begins that letter by condemning, 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 condemning. If you really understand where Paul has gone in those first two and a half chapters, you'll say to yourself, I do not have peace with God. I am afraid of God. Because God can see right into me. God can see my depravity. God knows that I don't love Him, that I actually hate Him. God knows that I only have my own interests at heart. God knows that I don't care about anybody else. As long as I'm happy, as long as I've got money, as long as I've got a place to stay for a man, as long as I've got a beautiful wife or for a lady, as long as I've got a handsome, rich husband, nothing else matters except that I'm happy in this world. And if I can use God... In order to get that, all the, all the better, because then I look good as well. That's what, that's what Paul is condemning us of in Romans 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20. He's saying, look at you, look at you, look at you. You're a God-hater. And then I come and I say, no God, I love you. And God says, no, you're a God-hater. And I say, no God, I love you, really. And he says, no, Alan, really, you're a God-hater. And until I can come to the point where I say to myself, honestly, God, what you're saying about me is true. I am a God-hater. Then I'm never, ever going to experience peace with God. You have to look at the grim reality in your own heart that if God was out of the way, I have this belief that if God was out of the way, I could really be free. But no, God is always in the way. All of the sinful things that I want to do, God is always in the way. It's like the, like the story that Lloyd-Jones tells about the prisoners in Alcatraz. You guys know where Alcatraz is. It's a, it's a very, very famous prison. That it's a museum or something now, but it was a terrible prison on a little island in the San Francisco Bay in the United States. And it was said that those prisoners in Alcatraz at night, through this, the bars of their cells, they could hear the, the nightlife in the San Francisco Bay. They could hear the cleaning of glasses. They could hear knives and forks on plates. They could hear the cars driving up and down. They could hear people laughing and having a good time at the restaurants. All the nightlife, the music pumping all night. They could hear freedom, but the walls of the prison were between them and that freedom. That was all that was between them. And it was said that those prisoners used to curse those walls and punch the walls because they were so angry that the walls were keeping them from freedom. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20. He's saying God is like the wall of the prison in our minds. And we, we curse God and we punch the walls 
Because God is keeping us from freedom. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And we hate God. We're aggressive toward God. How can a person like that have peace with God? You can't. It's impossible for you to achieve peace with God on those terms, isn't it? So how can Paul in Romans 5 come and say, we have peace with God? You say, no Paul, I think you're mistaken. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know my depravity. You don't know what kinds of sins I'm guilty of. You don't know what I look at on the internet. You don't know how I think about the people around me. In fact, if my wife or husband knew some of the thoughts I think about her or him, they would want to divorce me. You know what I'm saying? We, we know our depravity. We know how sick we are. So how can it be that Paul can come and say, we have peace with God? Don't we want to know the answer to this question? I want to know. I want to know how this happens. So of course, Paul, he summarizes that whole argument in Romans 3 verse 9 to 18. And he, he brings it all into one, one neat conclusion. And he starts by saying in verse 9 uh, and 10, he says, There is no difference for all have uh, He says, There is no difference. But as we, what, uh, how does he say it? Um, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better, Jews or Gentiles? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? No. He says, We've already made the charge that all alike are under the power of sin. We under sin. We're driven, we're motivated on a daily basis by sin. And then he says there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Just again and again and again, he's absolutely certain about how depraved you and I are. And that might discourage you, and it also confuses us when Paul says, we have peace with God. So how does this work? Paul, if I am so depraved, how do I have peace with God? How can I sleep at night thinking that maybe somebody's going to shoot me or stab me before I wake up in the morning? How can I go to sleep at night and say, it is okay if I die tonight? How can I know that I have peace with God? So when Paul summarizes that, he includes everybody, doesn't he? he? Includes me. He includes each one of you sitting in your chairs. And that can make you a bit nervous. Until you come to Romans 3, verse 21, one of the most glorious verses in the whole Bible, when he says, But now, in contrast to all of that condemnation, in contrast to all of that depravity and the enmity, the wrath of God, poured out on you and I on a daily basis. He says, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known or has been revealed. God has unveiled this new glorious thing in the gospel. And what is that glorious thing? It's God's righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. And if you and I look at God's righteousness, you look at God and you say, wow, God, is, His righteousness is way beyond me. I'm depraved. And God is absolutely perfect. So of course, you look at God and you say, God, why is it such good news that you would pull a veil of your righteousness and say, look how glorious I am in my righteousness. Of course, if you're like a maggot in your sin, you know, if you are conscious that you're filthy in your sin and you look at God's righteousness, that makes you feel worse, doesn't it? You can't have peace 
with that God, if you are totally unrighteous, like Romans 3 verse 10 says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. If I am like that, why is it good news? If God pulls the curtain like this curtain off His righteousness and He says, Ta-da, look how righteous I am. It's almost like this. Let's say you were, let's say you're sitting on the street and you're penniless. You don't have a single coin to rub against another. And some rich, rich, rich guy comes along in his fancy car, driven by a chauffeur. And he comes, the door opens, and this guy comes out of his car. You can smell even his perfume, his deodorant, whatever, his the stuff that men wear. It's, let's say that's even more expensive than you've ever seen in your life. You, you ever hope to have that much money in your life. That guy's wearing a scent or cologne or whatever that costs more, than, more money than you've ever seen. And he sits down with you on the pavement. And he elbows you and he says, Hey, dude, you see how rich I am? Is that good news for you? You say, it just puts that, man. Why would you come sit next to me on the pavement and tell me, look how rich I am? Just get in your car, go away. Go somewhere else, man. We don't want to hear you. I mean, that's, that's your reaction, isn't it? It's like, who, you know, when you're in poverty, who needs a rich person to come and like pull open his shirt and say, look, you know, I'm Superman kind of thing. I'm, I've got so much money, you can't even calculate how much money I've got. We don't need that, do we? So why is it good news when you're a beggar, when you're unrighteous, and God comes and He pulls open the curtain and He says, Look how righteous I am. I'm, I'm infinitely beyond you. There's no way in which you could ever reach the status of righteousness. You almost want to say, like God, you know, just close that up and go back to heaven because that's where your righteousness belongs. You don't belong here among us sinful people. That's almost what you want to say, eh? Remember when Jesus healed that man in the tombs. And after he healed that man in the tombs that was demon possessed and tearing the chains apart and everything. They said to him, go away, go away. Why? Because he's so glorious. He doesn't belong among ordinary people. Okay, but please don't miss this, okay. When he says, we have peace with God. How did that happen? Because as you're looking at the righteousness of God, that glorious righteousness... His wealth, His massive wealth in righteousness, God is coming to you as an individual and He's saying, this righteousness of mine has now become yours. I'm, I'm just giving it to you. I can see it's like the beggar sitting on the street and the rich person coming and saying to him, you see how rich I am? And you want to say, just get lost with your money, okay? And he says, no, 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 just wait. And he writes a check and he says, everything I own has now become yours. You are absolutely wealthy. You've got all of the righteousness of God. It's your possession. You own it now. I mean, God looks at me as if I am as righteous as God is. Even though I'm not righteous. I mean, what a glorious reality. Now God can come to me as in Romans 5 verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. In the Greek and in the Hebrew, this helps us to understand this a little more clearly. In the Greek and in the Hebrew, the word righteous and the word justice or righteousness and justice are exactly the same word. There's no difference. It's only in English where we have righteousness and justice. And I think that's probably because if we were going to speak in English about justification and righteousness, 
interchangeably, then we would have to say something like righteous missification by faith. And that doesn't really work, does it? It doesn't really roll off the tongue. So justification by faith is far easier, it's less clumsy than righteous missification. Someone being made righteous by faith or declared righteous. So I'm hoping, hoping you can see why Paul is so excited that he can say just straight flat out sentence, we have peace with God. God is no longer my enemy. Even though I'm still unrighteous, God has given all of that glorious wealth of righteousness to me as an individual. And I can say that is absolutely amazing. Some people, when I explain this to them, they say to me, but that's too much. And if that's what you're thinking about this, then you've come to the right conclusion. It's, how could God give me so much when I'm such a failure? That's the right conclusion to come to. And it is overwhelming that God comes to me, a sinner, Alan, in my filth. And He says, Alan, you see how righteous I am, Alan? And I want to shield my faith, my, my face because God's righteousness is so glorious. And it's so unlike mine. And then He says, this, hey, yeah, I've given this to you. Are you serious? Are you serious, God? You gave me the righteousness of God. And he says, yes, it's yours. It's your possession. Now, every time I look at you, I look at you as if you are as righteous as I am. And I'm happy with you. I'm totally happy with you. Well, isn't that absolutely amazing? I mean, we could stop at any of these points, but I, I want to rush on into Romans 5 because... This is what he's building on. This is why he says, we have peace with God. Now, what does that mean for you and I? What does it mean for you and I living our daily lives? We were reading Romans 12, 1 and 2 about not being conformed, but being transformed. You know, what, is that, what does that look like in our daily lives? How, how, what is my mindset toward God when, I, when I'm conscious of my daily failures, but God at the same time declares me righteous. That is a bit confusing, isn't it? We, we're, we're two things at the same time, aren't we? We're sinners and we're also saints. You know, we, we're unrighteous and we're righteous at the same time. It's a hard thing for, it's the rest of your life, this, working this out. You know, trying to understand how to live. So what does he say? He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, remember if you know that how Romans works, that's the whole point of Romans 3 verse 21 to 25. He shows how Jesus is the one who produces this entire life of righteousness for, for God's people. And then he says, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Through whom we have gained access, through Jesus Christ, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, there's, there's a couple of words in this verse that are so big, they're so loaded with information, you know, so loaded with joyful content, that I'm, I'm telling you now, if you catch what I'm saying today, you're going to go away and you're not going to be able to get over what this text is saying. This is so amazing. It's so wonderful that I, can, I can't get over it. Since I discovered this, this is one of the primary motivating factors in my life. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ we have gained access. What is it to gain access? It's to get into a place 
that you have no authority to get into, isn't it? So let me use this illustration that Lloyd-Jones uses. He says, imagine you're a, a beggar sitting on the pavement outside Buckingham Palace. You know Buckingham Palace in, in England, fancy place, a lot of gold, a lot of fancy people, and it's very, very tight access. You can't just walk in there. So let's say you're sitting there, it's winter and it's snowing. And there you're sitting, freezing, man, under a tree, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to die tonight, it's so cold. So you decide, well, look at this palace. I mean, they've got plenty of money in this place. There's a fire burning in the fireplace. It's a huge big fireplace. All the royals are, are drinking tea and eating nice food. You know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to get up and I'm going to go into the palace and I'm going to go and warm up by the fire. Now, of course, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to get to the gate and the guards are going to hoof you out because you have no right to go into that place. You've got no access. But now what happens once they've kicked you out and they said, get lost, we don't want you here, you street rat. And then you go sit down there again, the snow is piling up on you and you're shivering. I mean, it's hard to imagine that now in this warm day, but you're busy shivering and the snow is piling up on you and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to die here. I don't have anywhere else to go. And while you're sitting there shivering and turning blue, you feel this tap on your shoulder and you hear a voice saying to you, hey... You're going you're gonna to freeze to death out here. You better come inside. And you look up and you can see it's the prince. It's the son of the king who's come out of the palace because he saw you through the window. And he says, I'm going to take you inside because you're going to die here. We can't have you dying on the pavement. Now you go through the gates. And those guards who just kicked you out, they're just like, you know, they're looking because now they feel stupid. Because now the prince is bringing you in. And they can't say a thing. And you walk straight into the palace. Nobody stops you because you're with the prince. And while you're busy on your way toward the fireplace where the king is sitting, you say to the prince, Hey, listen, I don't even want to say this, but I'm filthy, man. I stink. There's fleas on me. The flies are flying around me. I'm filthy, man. I can't go to the king looking like this. So the prince says to you, Okay, yeah, I get your point, you know. Go to the royal bedroom. Go to my bedroom. You go to the royal shower, you go take a lacquer wash there, you use the royal shampoo and the royal soap and you, whatever royal stuff you want to use, you come out, you get a royal haircut, you get all my royal servants and they will give you whatever you want. And when you're ready, you're dressed in my clothes out of my cupboard, you come in, you call the servants and they'll, they'll uh, call me and I'll take you to the king. So you can imagine that here you are in all your filth, scrub, 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 you're getting all dressed up and next thing you look like the prince. You're clean, you're shaven, you've, you've got the prince's clothes on and the prince comes and he says, let me introduce you to the king. Now imagine, you had no access before, the key here is access. You had no right to be here, but now you're in the prince's bedroom, you look like the prince, you're in the prince's clothes, you smell like the prince. The prince comes and he takes you to the king and he says, Father, I'd like to say dad, but I mean, sure he can. But he says, Father, dad, this is, this is Alan. I've brought him to meet you. He doesn't give the whole story about where I came from. The fact is that because I'm with him, nothing else matters. I have peace with that king because the prince has given me access to this place where I can stand in front of the king without being beheaded. Absolutely amazing. I have peace with God. 
Because Jesus Christ has given me access into a place where I had no right to be before. Wonderful, wonderful thing justification through faith is, isn't it? Okay, but now, let me point out one other thing. Now this, hopefully this is a bit weird when you read it the first time. Look at the text again. He says, through whom, through Jesus Christ, in verse 1, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace. And I'm not going to talk about the issue of faith because he already spent a whole chapter, the whole of chapter 4 speaking about faith. So unfortunately we're going to miss that for today. Um, by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You're like, what is it? What is going on here? Sometimes I say, doesn't that seem a bit weird to you when you read that text? Into this grace in which we now stand. You're like, no, it seems okay to me. But now, what is grace? Let's ask the question, what is grace? Grace is obviously is unmerited favor. And in this case, it's demerited favor. I have been the person... That Paul describes in Romans 1 verse 18 to 3 verse 20. I have been that depraved person my whole life. So I have been a hater of God my whole life. Not, I'm not just an innocent person that God is giving grace when I don't deserve it. But I've deliberately been God's enemy. I've deliberately gone against Him. And in spite of that, God has given me access. He's given me this peace with Him. He's given me His righteousness. That is amazing. So grace is not the kind of thing that can issue demands, is it? So now, let's say you're, the, you're in the bedroom of the prince and you're busy getting cleaned up and you go to see the king and the king finally says to you, Okay, Alan, um, how has your experience been in the palace so far? And you say to the king, You know what? Since I came in here, I've used the prince's bedroom, I've used the prince's shower, I've used the prince's garments, I've used the prince's deodorant, and now I'm here in the prince's name. You know, aren't you ever going to give me my own room? I don't even like the color of the prince's room. I want it blue, I don't want it red. That's not what grace does, eh? Grace doesn't issue demands. I don't like this jacket, give me another one now. No, if you're there by grace, you have no words. You say, thank you, whatever you've given me, I'm grateful for, I have no complaints. So if the king asks you when you stand there, you're going to say, oh man, what a privilege that I can stand in front of you without dying. What a wonder to be here among all the royal people and not out on the pavement in, you know, dying from in the snow. You get my point. Grace is that thing that you just say, thank you, thank you so much. That you've given me all this stuff and you do not demand another thing. Isn't that true? Okay, but now, what does it mean when Paul says, into this grace in which we now stand? Now that's interesting. That's interesting, isn't it? You say, that sounds unusual. Bit of an unusual phrase because that word stand is one of those fancy Greek words known as the asymmetric conjugations. You know, it's one of those weird words. It's, it's in a group of words that is difficult to translate and a little difficult to understand. But the word histemi was actually the word that means stand in the sense of a military stand. So it's like if you can imagine this little village and you've got men, women and children living there with their goats and their sheep and their cows and everything. 
and they hear that an enemy is approaching that's going to come and wipe out this village. And all of the men in the village, they say, they kiss their wives goodbye, and they kiss their kids goodbye, and they say, you know what, there's this massive enemy coming, and us men, we're going to pick up what weapons we have, we're going to go outside of the village a distance, we're going to draw a line in the sand, and we're going to defend you, our wives and children, with our lives. If we have to drop dead on that line, we won't move. It's either death or victory. There's no other. We're not going to retreat. We can't because then the village is going to be overrun. So you can imagine all those guys hugging their wives and I love you so much, honey, but I have to go out there and take a stand. I'm going to stand there. And if I die, I'm going to die protecting you. If I die, there's nothing else I could do, but that's all I can do for you. I'm going to stand. So you can imagine all of those men going out of the village and standing at that line and this, this massive army comes toward them and they say, move out of the way because we're going to kill you all. And they say, we will stand. You don't, you're not going to move me from this place. So imagine you're there with the prince in front of the king. And the prince says to the king, uh, Father, I'm going to leave Alan here in front of you for a while. You can talk to him, but I have to go and attend to some other issue. Now let's say while you're standing, speaking to the king, one of the palace guards looks through the window and he wasn't there when the prince brought you in. And he looks and he sees the street bum standing in front of the king, dressed in the prince's clothes. You're like, how dare he stand in front of the king, this beggar, how dare he stand here in front of his majesty in the prince's clothes. And he comes walking in and he says, your majesty, this guy's an imposter. I'll throw him out right now. What do you do? You say, oh, I'm here by grace. It's okay. You can take me and throw me outside. No. Through Jesus Christ, He's given us access into this grace in which we now stand. Like a soldier stands. Yes, I'm here by grace, but you will not move me. You do not move me from this position. I stand before God with a right to be there because of Jesus Christ. Am I still the street bum? Of course I'm still the street bum. Am I unrighteous? Of course I'm unrighteous. But God is treating me as if I have every authority to be there. I have the wealth of God's righteousness. I have everything the king has. That he's imputed, he's given to me. It's my own possession. And he's treating me as if I belong there. And if God treats me as if I belong there, then I do belong there. What a wonderful reality. And as that God comes along, I say, you won't touch me. You will not touch me. I stand here with every right before the king, even though I'm ashamed of my own sinful failures. I stand here. Why is it that God requires a true believer, in spite of your sin, in spite of your shame, in spite of your failures, why is it that God is so determined to have you stand like a soldier in front of His throne of grace, with such resolve. Why is it? And this illustration works. Um, a few years ago, I use this illustration a lot, so if you've heard it, just forgive me. A few years ago, a guy that I know who's not very well off, he saved up a lot of money to send me and my girls to Australia to visit my brother. Uh, in those days, it cost 32,000 rand to send the three of us over to Australia. And when that person said to me, I've saved up this money, I want to send you to Australia. I'm like, wow, I can't believe it, man. I was so shocked that this person would think of me 
in such a way as to save up over this extended period of time and give me all this money to send me on a trip. It's not like he's buying something that can be used. It was just because he cared that I hadn't seen my brother for a long time. And he sent me that. It was grace. I was a recipient of his grace. He was kind to me. Now what if, what if I said to the guy, no ways. You saved up 32,000 rand. I couldn't, no, I couldn't possibly accept that. I'm not worthy of that. And he, what will he say? He'll say, yeah, I know. I know you haven't done anything to earn it, but I chose to give it to you. And I'll say, no, <laughs> sorry, I'm not taking it. He'll say, no, come on, I insist. And then you say, no, I'm not going to accept it. Listen, I saved up for a long time to send you to Australia. You better take this money. You can imagine how ugly this gets when somebody really pours out grace on you and you refuse it. Now imagine. Imagine the king on his throne. He has sent his son into this world to live every moment of your life as you perfectly and to come into this world and bleed his blood out and die that gory death on the cross as you and to sign the contract of your peace before him with the blood of his own son. And then you say, oh no, no, I, I'm sinful. I'm just going to hide behind a pot plant. It's okay for me to be behind a pot plant in the kingdom. You know, don't look at me. And he's like, where's Alan? Oh no, God, I'm, I'm ashamed because I don't deserve to be here. I've sinned and, I, you know, I can't look at you now. So just, I'm just going to hide behind the door in the shadow there and that's enough for me. And it's almost like God here saying, well, that's not enough for me. It's an insult to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ if you don't come and stand boldly in front of the throne of grace. You stand. Because I bought that position for you with my own blood. You know how many times you and I, we know what it's like. When you've sinned, you're like, no, I can't face God now. I'm too ashamed to come back to God. What do you hear God saying? Yes, it's a relationship of grace, but I demand that you stand. I demand that you come back right now and you speak to me. Why? Because I've given you access to this place. You have, what? Peace with God. You've got peace. I can, at any point, I can come to God and there's peace between me and God. Not because of my sinful state, but because of my standing before God. He's put me in a standing where I cannot move. And I tell you what, I find that so, so, so encouraging and empowering in the Christian life. That God knows about my messed up life. And God still says, Alan, stand. And I'm like, God, I don't deserve to be... Hey, stand. No, but God, you don't know. I do know. Stand. It's like, it's so encouraging. Okay, and then how does that verse end? Okay, How does Romans 5 verse 1 and 2 end? And not only do we have peace, not only do we have access, not only are we in a state of grace, not only do we stand in that grace, but also we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This thing is coming. Notice, just notice this one thing about this text, and that is that Paul has deliberately cut out one item in this flow of events. And that one item that he's cut out, obviously, if you look at the text, 
is the whole process of sanctification. We've been justified through faith. This is how we stand. We stand in grace and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the future. You're like, but Paul, what about now? <laughs> you know, what about my sinfulness? What about how I'm going to get through this? And the answer is, you know what? If God has declared you righteous, then whatever happens in your sanctification process, God is going to make you holy and He's going to glorify you. If you have been justified through faith, you will be glorified. And yeah, of course, you're going to be sanctified in the middle. Romans 12, 1 and 2 that you were looking at just now. Hey? Not being conformed. And those are passive imperatives, by the way. I think I preached that before here. Yeah. Passive imperatives. Don't allow yourself. It's not don't do this. It's don't allow yourself. Don't allow this to happen to you. It's, it's soft. It's a soft imperative. Both of those. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What are you going to look like when God has glorified you? I mean, you look, just imagine yourself looking in the mirror right now and you're looking at your glorified self. I mean, that could happen today. It could happen before I finished talking here today. That God could snatch us all away and we could be glorified in an instant. Remember what John said, you know, we don't know what we're going to be like, but when we see Him, in that moment, the beautific vision, when we see Jesus, we're going to be like Him. Because we will see Him as He is. Shining with the glory of God. Do you, can you imagine what you and I are going to look like looking at each other, shining with the glory of God? One thing I know for a fact is that there's going to be such a contrast between what I am now and what I will be then that everybody is going to be looking at God and saying, God, you made that out of that? You took, you took something like this and you made that out of it? Ah, I can't believe it. Unbelievable. You know, you took a loser, man. You took a depraved sinner. You took a person who's all about himself and you made that glorious being that looks like God. Ah, I don't know. God, there, there must be some crazy magic going on here to make that transformation take place. But it'll be unbelievable the change that God brings about. Not me. I'm not going to glorify myself. God is going to make me glorious like He is glorious. And I rejoice in that hope. I rejoice in it. Maybe just as we finish this thing, I don't even know how long I've been talking, but um, if, you, if you look at the next few verses, you can see how they are connected, okay? Romans 3, you know, 5 verse 3, when he says, And not only so, but we also rejoice. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why do we rejoice in our suffering? Because suffering is great? No. Suffering is not great. Suffering is suffering. But we rejoice in our sufferings because we know there's something we know as a fact. And as you stand before God, you know certain things as a fact. God, you have declared me righteous. That's a fact. God, you've given me access in front of the throne of God. That's a fact. God, you've, you've poured out your grace on me. That's a fact. God, I stand before your throne immovable for the rest of eternity. That's a fact. I will be glorified. That's a fact. And what else is a fact? We rejoice in our sufferings because we know 
we know are the facts. Suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because the Spirit of God has poured out His love into our hearts. And what a wonderful reality that is. So guys, just, just trying to share some of my hope in the Gospel here today. Unprepared, so if it was a bit scruffy today, forgive me for that, okay? But the Lord bless you through this, man. Let me, let me just pray for us. Lord, we're so grateful for this, this wonderful text of Scripture, Romans 5, just these two verses even. And Lord, we think of them in the context of Romans 1 to, to 5, and we see the shocking, shocking, shocking depravity. We see our lostness before you. We see the absolute hopelessness that we could ever be righteous before you. Remember what even Job said, how can a mortal be righteous before God? It's impossible. But Lord, because you come to us, the perfectly righteous God, and you give us your righteousness, and then you treat us as if we are righteous, and you, you give us all of the benefits, as if we had lived the perfect life and died a perfect death, and we live on through the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, thank you that we can stand in grace where we have access before the throne of God forever and ever and ever. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged this week in the face of our own depravity, in the face of our own weakness to argue for this reality, to argue for this truth that we stand before the throne of God with great boldness. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage as we fight our sin this week. We pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.